0: like a jet of blue flame shot from a gun, unquote. We now return you to the music of Ramon Raquello, playing for you in the Meridian Room of the Park Plaza Hotel, situated in downtown New York.
1: Hi, Stewheads. It's me again, Leah.
2: And I'm Phil. And I'm
3: Steve. Let us be the first to wish you Happy Happy April April Fool's Fool's Day. Day!
1: In true April Fool's fashion, we are presenting you with stories of some of the best pranks and hoaxes that have ever been perpetrated by knuckleheads of all kinds. Oh, and I've known some knuckleheads.
2: I resemble that.
1: If you have an appetite for the strange and bizarre, then pull up a chair and grab a spoon for another intriguing serving of Remnant Stew. Remnant Stew is gluten-free, organic, made from all natural, free-range ingredients and guaranteed to provide the recommended daily serving of curiosity.
3: Well, let's take a look at our calendar of course uh, we know that thursday this thursday april 1st is april fool's day we'll be talking about that a good bit more we have some other important holidays though uh, coming up april 2nd of course is good friday april 4th is easter and this year it also coincides with the end of passover um april 5th though is celebrated as national deep dish pizza day hey
1: yeah. that's my kind of day
3: that's a good day for sure uh, the deep dish pizza, it's uh, believed to be one of the most popular pizza types in the United States. Ike Sewell, founder of Uno's Pizzeria, invented the deep dish pizza in 1943 in Chicago. I guess that's why it now is sometimes called Chicago-style pizza. And the observance is annually on April the 5th. Oh, yes, and let's not forget April the 9th is National Unicorn Day.
1: Uh, right,
3: right. right. The mythological animal is represented by the image of a horse- with a horn on its forehead. The unicorn originated from artworks in the early Mesopotamia and from ancient myths in China and India. National Unicorn Day occurs every year on April 9th, so have some nice holidays to look forward to.
1: That's right. So how do you celebrate National Unicorn Day?
3: Well, you know, I was just thinking uh, uh, in high school, my friends and I used to uh, uh, go into the local Dairy Queen a lot, and uh, they would give you a little receipt uh, with when they they ripped off your... uh, um, order. it was a little strip of paper about an inch uh, wide and maybe three inches long with your number on it, right? Well, we made what we called unicorn dogs to uh, chase unicorns out of the dairy queen. It was a, oh. It was a really nice little culture art form uh, back in, back in the day. So you know I think that's how uh, one way you could celebrate it is by making a unicorn dog. Out of the uh, out of your little strip of paper. Okay, wait. Playing.
1: I'm just. Okay, wait. What is how a much, unicorn dog? What chases do away we,
3: unicorns? How
2: okay. much origami did you have to do? <laughs> <laughs> no. Not a whole lot.
3: I'll, I'll make one for you, and we can take a picture of it, put it on the website.
1: <laughs> and it has. I mean, it looks like a unicorn dog, um, or
3: or is that just like what a dog. you
1: call? Okay, okay.
3: <laughs> well, April Fool's Day, according to Mental Floss the origins of April Fool's Day is unclear. Some claim it dates back to Roman times. Others say it originated in Renaissance France. But for whatever reason, the practice of fooling people on April 1st has been around for centuries. Some early pranks noted in France were to send someone on a, quote, fool's errand, quite literally. For example, master painters might send a novice looking for a can of striped paint. There's a good trick right there. Or maybe a bucket of steam or perhaps even a jar of elbow grease.
1: Yeah, we that we do that all the time. Right. We, we <laughs> did that with our boys all the time.
2: Snipe sure. hunting?
3: Snipe yeah. hunting, right. yeah. That's right. not, I think that fits right in there. Um, I had a relative who was in a construction contractor, uh, my mother's uh, cousin. And he was also quite a prankster. He a very good magician as well. He was always doing magic tricks at our holiday parties. But anyway, he liked to send a worker to plug in a long extension cord in order to hook up a light. However, he had secretly palmed a battery-operated light bulb. Before the worker could reach the plug, he would hold up the light bulb and say, Okay, that's good. The worker would stare in (laughs) confusion at the not-yet-connected plug he was holding in his hand, wondering how in the world that that light was glowing. (laughs) Those construction workers, they love to play pranks. Um, one of the earliest recorded pranksters was the teenage Roman emperor. Okay, I'm going to say his name mm, wrong. E-L-A-G-A-B-A-L-U-S. Elagabalus.
1: Okay. Elagabalus. Elagabalus, okay. yeah. Okay.
3: And not surprisingly, he was also one of Rome's worst emperors as well.
1: <laughs> it was because of his name.
3: The Men of Loss article quoted a book by Warwick Ball. Which stated that Elagabalus loved to have his pompous guests sit on whoopee cushions. Now, how would you have a, a, a second-century whoopee cushion? I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, what what would they make them out of back in the uh, day? Pig
1: bladder or something. Yeah, bound to be <laughs> I didn't a know whoopee cushions went. Date it back that far. Yeah,
3: I know. Well, it was probably something to do with a bladder, all bit.
1: But farts are always funny, even yeah. in history.
3: Exactly. You've raised a lot of boys, haven't you? Right. <laughs> he also thought it was fun to release snakes in public places. This is the emperor, by the way. Oh, that sounds fun. And uh, well, he was a teenager though. He was 14 when he became emperor. So that oh yeah. Well, then the bit...
2: jokes on everyone else, yeah. Yeah.
3: Right. right? Oh, and he also liked to slip his pet lion into the bedroom of his drunken guests. I don't oh, know, okay. Funny. Get your attention. <laughs>
1: If I had a pet lion, I would do the yeah, same for thing. Yeah, for sure.
3: His reign lasted only four years, from two, uh, 218 to 222 A.D., when at the age of 18, he was assassinated by his guards. <laughs> I, not just one know, guard, all of the guards turned on him. And I'm
1: thinking, yeah, I mean, and that's I not so. really a
2: surprise, right? I'm surprised they didn't to let the lion in on him.
3: Right, for sure. Nowadays, we hear the term fake news bandied about by politicians and journalists. However... A fake newspaper called the English Mercury, and it's spelled M-E-R-C-U-R-I-E, beats all contenders hands down. The English Mercury was printed in the 1740s, or rather in 1740, but with a date claiming to be 1588. You see what they did there? They backdated it like 150 <laughs> years. It was produced by Philip York, a member of Parliament. The paper was gifted to the British Museum, which treated it as a legit as legitimate for decades. Phony information in the Mercury spread through cultured centers and universities for years and was taken at face value. Even today, information in the Mercury concerning the Spanish Armada is still often misquoted or quoted by websites and news agencies as being accurate, but it really was not. It never was intended to be accurate. Yeah, and
1: you can't like yeah, once you let that out, you can't pull it back in.
2: Wow. Wow.
1: Well, at the beginning of our show, you might have noticed a little bit, something a little bit different before the intro music.
3: You think they noticed? I, we, I bet they noticed. Yeah, I bet we they played noticed. an
1: excerpt. Some uh, their heads. War <laughs> of the Worlds, a 1938 broadcast by Orson Welles that is known as one of the greatest American hoaxes of all time. War of the Worlds was originally a 19th century science fiction novel written by H.G. Wells, which is no relation to Orson,
2: right. about
1: a Martian invasion of Earth. The radio dramatization written by Casablanca uh, screenwriter Howard Koch was read over the air by Orson Welles on October 30th, so the day before Halloween, Uh 1938. It was not planned as a radio hoax, so they say. (laughs) Uh, In fact, at the beginning of the broadcast, it is clearly announced the Columbia Broadcasting System, and this is a quote, uh, ha- and its affiliated stations present Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the air in War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. Clearly, so at the
3: beginning, it, it was, stated this, it is was just, stated this is a story. We're just reading a story to you.
1: That's right. It, clearly, a dramatic radio show and not a live breaking news broadcast, right? But unfortunately, not everyone heard that part.
3: If you tuned in in the middle,
1: a quote from history.com says Sunday evening in uh, 1938 was prime time in the golden age of radio. And millions of Americans had their radios turned on, but most of the Americans were listening to ventriloquist Edgar Bergen and his dummy Charlie McCarthy. Oh yeah, I've seen them yeah. on on NBC. They were so they were listening to NBC, and only turned to CBS at eight twelve, after the comedy. St- sketch ended and a little known singer came on so they were channel surfing because there's nothing better
3: than a ventriloquist on the radio you,
1: I, know? you know what i thought that too i thought that too i mean he, i think he was famous well, we, go, we, gotta so stay.
3: we gotta see if he we can we can we see his, his, his lips, lips moving. <laughs> 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 i
1: thought that too i was like yeah you know but um but anyway so by the time they they switched over the martian invasion was well underway and because they were channel surfing A lot of people missed the beginning. So the dramatization was played out like a breaking news broadcast. Yes, there was the initial CBS announcement introducing Orson Welles and the the novel by H.G. Wells. But then what sounded like a weather report followed by dance music started. Uh, Mm -hmm. Then all of a sudden an an, an announcer broke in with a fake news report to declare that explosions were being detected on Mars more dance music, and then another interruption. So it was played just like breaking news. We
3: interrupt this program.
1: That's right, in which listeners were informed that a large meteor had crashed into a farmer's field in Grover's Mills, uh, New Jersey. Now, this wasn't done just by Orson Welles. He had more people in on this. There were a lot of actors and, and everything, and there people, were sound effects. People and,
3: imitating actual reporters. That's and right. Your reporter on yeah. the scene. So, so,
2: Mercury, Mer- Mercury was... Kind of an advertising. Well, they were well, they were a also radio theater, a theater group. Right. right? That's
1: right. And so soon, a reporter at the quote unquote crash site described Martians emerging emerging from a metallic cylinder, and then the mesmerizing voice of or- Orson Welles described in great detail an alien attack, complete with ray guns, the annihilation of national guardsmen, uh, poisonous gas, more Martian landings in other cities, and a full out war on the Earth. And, um,
3: you know, I can remember my grandmother telling me that a friend of hers called her and told her
1: turn to turn on your radio, radio right? there's, yeah. there's,
3: there's a Martian attack.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, that, it kind of makes me think back to how we reacted to 9-11. Right. You know, um, so an announcement was made that widespread panic had broken out in the vicinity of the landing sites. This is for real with thousands desperately trying to flee. The radio show was extremely realistic, complete with sound effects and, of course, other actors portraying uh, terrified announcers and other characters. So, for the rest of the hour, terror crackled over the airwaves and fear spread like wildfire across the nation as Americans in their homes huddled around their radios. So, to, you
3: know, radio was still pretty new at this time.
1: Right. Know. And it was, yeah, the, it was the advent of, the Ameri- of home role, entertainment. Yeah. And that's what what people did. And so, it was, and so it, was,
3: it, was, it was easy to get taken in by this oh, very so drawn in th- think about you, before you judge that generation too harshly think about have you ever been fooled by an internet hoax you know
1: right and right, everybody... right and, and i'm going to get into into that a little bit of of where americans were at that time right. to, to be pulled into this but to quote history.com human germs rather than human armies ultimately did in the mythical martian invaders and at the end of the hour the director wrapped up the radio drama by telling his audience This is Orson Welles, ladies and gentlemen, out of character to assure you that the War of the Worlds has no further significance than as a holiday offering as it was intended to be. The Mercury Theater's own radio version of dressing up in a sheet and jumping out of a bush and saying boo. So they were told again.
3: Yeah, at the end, this was not real. Didn't really, not really happen.
1: And, and there was a reminder at the intermission, but... The anxiety induced by the broadcast confused listeners, and many believed it to be all too real. Police departments, newspapers, and CBS itself we were all just inundated, inundated. with calls. Um, they should have had
3: the guys, the Martians jump out of a Mercury, you know. So
1: <laughs> imagine the, the
3: irony. They show up in a Mercury. Guy.
1: I'm not thinking that would have had the same effect, but...
2: You would have uh, had them all go, get back in there. And get yeah,
1: yeah, So, um... History.com says, in New Jersey, ground zero for the fictitious invasion. National Guardsmen wanted to know where they should report for duty. Uh, The Trenton Police Department fielded 2,000 calls in under two hours. In Providence, Rhode Island, hysterical callers begged the electric company to cut power to the city to keep it safe from the extraterrestrial invaders.
2: If you can't see them, you can't get to them. That's right. (laughs) we're here. Blackout. Blackout.
1: blackout. That's right. So before you judge too harshly, harshly, remember that the 1930s, that was a rough time for Americans. Right. Uh, With the Great Depression, the imminent threat of another great war as World War II was on the brink of breaking out. And plus the Hindenburg disaster. I think there was a major hurricane in that area. All of that was fresh in the hearts of Americans. Newspapers. Listen to this news talk about fake news newspapers who at the time felt threatened by the emergence of radio as an informational and advertising medium took the opportunity to strike back at its rival there were sensational stories printed about suicide attempts because of the the broadcast heart attacks mass hysteria.
3: So, folks, trust your newspaper, not that newfangled radio. That,
1: it, right. <laughs> trust us. We'll, we'll, we'll inform you.
2: We've got <laughs> you back, really. Quoting
1: again from History.com, with threats of lawsuits swirling in the press, CBS went into damage control. Ugh. At a hastily called press conference, a doe-eyed Wells, uh, Orson Wells, displayed his theatrical acumen and expressed his remorse and his shock at public reaction. I can't imagine an invasion from Mars," he said. "Would find would find ready acceptance." Um, th- that's what he said when he was asked point blank if he had pranked co- the country. Decades later, however, Wells admitted the kind of response was merrily anticipated by us Oh, all. so they were <laughs> kind of they were kind of agitating. It. <laughs> he said though he said the size of it, of course, was flabbergasting. That's
3: a great.
2: So
1: word, so they knew what they were doing. They just didn't realize. How big it was going to be. The Federal Communications Commission did not sanction CBS or Wells, and the radio dramatist uh, quickly spun his Halloween trick into a treat. Thanks to what became known as the Panic Broadcast, the radio program signed Campbell's Soup as a sponsor. So apparently Campbell's Soup was a big sponsor. Mm -hmm. And uh, soon after, Wells landed a deal to direct Citizen Kane, named by the American Film Institute as the greatest movie of all time so he came out smelling like a rose he sure
3: did yeah he did and you know there, there were a lot of movies in the time right after that that played on this theme in the late 40s early 50s you know about men from mars landing and so oh forth. yeah mm. very good
1: now for today's bookshop spot the part of the show where we take you on a virtual tour of one of the most magical of places an independent bookshop. What I love, Steve, about doing these bookshop spots is how unique each bookstore is. Yeah, they all right. have such distinct personalities that you don't get when ordering books from Amazon or even walking into a Barnes and Noble. Correct. Today's featured bookshop is one of those unique, or one of the most unique. I mean, uh, it is the Plains Trading Company. At the Plains
3: two, Trading Company. The
1: Plains Trading Company at 269 North Main Street in Valentine, Nebraska.
3: Valentine, Nebraska. Right in the middle of the country.
1: And Yeah. And it's I think it's because um, it's called the Plains Trading Company rather than a bookstore because it started out a little bit differently than a lot of our bookstores. That Maybe like feature. a general
3: store or something?
1: Well, uh, co-owner Darlene Meyer says that the store opened as one member of a five-member retail co-op in 1992. Okay. As co-op membership dropped off, they filled the empty spaces with more of their own stock and have been the sole proprietors for about 25 years. So they've been around for Outstanding. quite a time. They offer bulk coffee, beans or ground, Nebraska wine from several wineries, A wide selection of teas, toys from many different manufacturers, regional art, and elementary teaching supplies. Now, the store doesn't offer many events because the town they're located in, Valentine, only has a population of about 2,600 in a very uh, sparsely populated county. But the area is rich in culture and history surrounding, surrounding the Lakota Native American people. Oh, great. The Plains Trading Company offers books of all kinds, but specializes in that culture and the history of both the Lakota and the white settlers and cowboys of the area. Nice. So if you if you just peruse their website, the, it is so rich in that local culture. Uh, natural history and children's books are also a large and important sections of the store. So their website is www.plains. That's P-L-A-I-N-S. As in
3: being out on the plains. That's
1: right, trading.com. And you can find them on Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and Twitter.
3: Oh, nice. Oh, nice. And, and looking looking where Valentine is on the map, it's uh, in almost in South Dakota. So they are right in that Lakota Sioux Reservation area. Right in area. the middle of
1: the territory. That's so right.
3: Really, really interesting looking place. I think we need a. I think we need a road trip to these bookstores. Don't you? I think
1: that's right. We just (laughs) load up and go from bookshop to bookshop to bookshop. bookshop. That would be an amazing trip, family adventure.
3: There you go. Some of the uh, biggest pranksters in history involve some people that you know, big names. Um, Now, occasionally, pranks don't always go off as expected, though. You know, you ever ever had it sound like a good idea and it just didn't didn't work (laughs) out. Well, Samuel Clemens, as we also have known him as Mark Twain, he was a reporter for the Virginia City, Nevada newspaper. He thought he'd have a little fun by writing an article claiming that a petrified man had been found in the area. (laughs) According to Twain's article, the man was sitting down, thumbing his nose.
1: Right. Now, Twain
3: thought that that would be a dead giveaway to the spoof. But to a surprise, everyone in town took him seriously and thought it was for real. You know, <laughs> that's awesome. So, so there's your newspaper. You know, yeah. they they did spoofs too. Yes. <laughs> and then sometimes pranks can go wrong and get out of hand. Abraham Lincoln was staying in a hotel in Illinois. When he noticed a couple of kids playing with an inflated pig bladder. Now,
1: <laughs> if it? that
3: doesn't make you laugh right there, you know, right. I don't know what will. So
1: was it was it a whoopee cushion? Maybe that was where Is the whoopee it... cushion came from,
3: <laughs> yeah. It, it, not just a pig bladder, but an inflated pig bladder. bladder. Um, anyway, <laughs> Lincoln told the youths that the proper way to play with a pig bladder was to heat it up. Now... My mind uh, always goes back to the old Looney Tunes great cartoon character, Foghorn Leghorn. Uh, now, boy, that ain't no, no way to true. play with a pig bladder. <laughs> I may show you how to play with a pig bladder. And so they put it in the hotel's fireplace. Well, soon the bladder exploded and sent fiery hot coals and cinders flying throughout the dining room of the hotel. Lincoln grabbed a broom and began sweeping up the mess when the broom itself caught on fire in his hands. So, <laughs> I don't know if he was invited back to that hotel or not.
1: That's great.
3: And then sometimes Franks can go unexpectedly positive. Did I say Franks? Pranks. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> Franks um, can go unexpectedly Well, Franks can go positively, you
3: know. too, but uh, we're talking about pranks, dude. I, I think we have another episode for Franks. But uh, anyway, sometimes <laughs> pranks can go unexpectedly positive. As a joke, French American artist Marcel Duchamp entered, an, uh, entered a urinal into an art <laughs> exhibit in 1917. You know, it was like these one of these modern art things, you know. Well, the joke ended up being on him because the fountain, as he called it, ended up becoming one of his uh, most famous works, uh, not to mention an icon of 20th century art. You know, I think it won first place in the art
1: competition. Oh, my goodness.
3: Always oh, kind of wanted my school to name a urinal after me. You know, I don't know. If that's I, be fun.
1: I think Phil and I will donate <laughs> money for
3: that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> then there was the unexpected pranksters, the great scientist, and discoverer of radium, Madame Marie Curie. Now, you don't really think of her as a prankster, do you? But one time, she nailed a relative's shoes and furniture to the ceiling of their house. That's commitment. That's a good good trick right there. That's a new talent, (laughs) for sure. And then, of course, uh, there's Leonardo da Vinci, once attached leather wings onto a lizard carried around in his pocket and told people that it was a miniature dragon.
1: Oh, no, I want to do that.
3: Yeah, that's a good trick. I
1: love Da Vinci.
3: And then, of course, uh, what school principal hasn't ever wondered, uh, what kind of person are you going to become when you explode a toilet? Well, John F. Kennedy as a teenager (laughs) once threw a firecracker in a toilet at his school, and he blew the lid off. That (laughs) doesn't really
1: surprise me, honestly.
3: Well, he's
2: going to the
1: top. There you go. So I love this next story. You know, we we record, we live and uh, record in Texas, the and Greater so, Cut and
3: Shoot area. That's right. It, that's
1: right. And so, in Texas, football is kind of important. It's yeah, that's a big kind deal. Kind of a big deal. That's big
3: deal. Don't we take our football seriously. It,
1: it, and so,
2: yes,
0: <laughs> yes, yeah.
1: those Friday night lights shine over stadiums in big cities and small towns throughout the Lone Star State. One epic prank, and I love this one, involving a college marching band and an opponent's football field brought a different kind of shine. In 1999, the Southern Methodist University Mustangs were playing the Texas Christian University Horned Frogs at their home stadium. During at the at the uh, Mustangs home stadium.
3: No, the Horned Frogs
2: home stadium.
1: Oh, the horn. Okay, Yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. During the halftime show, the SMU Mustang uh, Marching Band completed their performance by perf- by forming their famous Diamond M on the TCU natural gra- gra- grass field. I can't talk. Uh, before breaking formation, however, each band member, and I raised a band member. Oh. I can see band kids doing this. <laughs> each band member reached into their uniform pocket and pulled out a handful of winter rye grass seed and just... Discreetly dropped it onto the field.
2: Oh!
1: A couple of weeks after the game, no. TCU officials noticed a strange new grass formation growing on their field, in and the, the, the shape of the diamond. <laughs> and we have, we have a picture of this. Yes, well, we, we got you for that. Are on our
3: Facebook page. Hey
2: that's, guys, deny this. <laughs>
3: yeah, right. that, that's that's one of the best pranks well, uh, of colleges that I've heard. I wow. didn't.
1: I haven't thought about that. You know, you really can't. Get away with that, like they're going to know who did that, right? (laughs) And they're going to know which. children were out there children high yeah. school or college, college kids, kids. Yeah, they're children to me yes. college kids out there they you know you're going to know exactly uh, oh, who yeah. and you know, well
3: SMU but, and TCU are natural rivals, rivals as well because they're so, so, SMU's yeah. in Dallas is in Fort Worth and so those two cities are rivals and so the colleges are have long time rivals as well so that was a, that was a good prank on that rival
1: was a very good prank
2: yeah now you um, kind of want to know what the what the horn frogs did
3: yeah, I haven't uh, I don't think you could top that. Because, yeah. But I think well I think the the SMU has a, had a, a, a not a natural grass field, it yeah, was some kind of a turf field. Yeah. Well, um my wife and I were in London uh, in the summer of 2019 and we really enjoyed our time there but we were kind of disappointed that Big Ben, the giant bell and the clock in Elizabeth's Tower right attached to the Parliament building wasn't working during the time we were there because of it was under renovation. It would have uh, scaffolding covering up the whole thing.
1: I'm glad that you you pointed that out because everybody thinks that that whole building is called Big Ben. Right, it's just it's the not, bell up inside. The, the right. building is
3: actually named after Queen Elizabeth, Elizabeth's Tower. Um, but the bell inside is huge and it can be heard all over the city, and that's the bell is called Big Ben. Well, anyway, um, the tower was being renovated It had scaffolding on it, and so we weren't able to see it or really or hear uh, Big Ben. But back in 1980, a BBC news announcer reported that the famous clock was going to be given a digital face. Now, you remember oh. in the late 70s, oh, wow. early 80s, yeah, uh, <laughs> digital watches were brand new. They just come out. And, uh, remember, my friend had one. The first one, you had to push a little button and you had little red letters, you know, right. to, uh, red, red numbers coming up on it. Um, So uh, digital watches were all the rage back then. He further stated that the the clock's now useless giant hands will be given away to the first four people who phoned the station. (laughs) 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 Most people realized it was a joke, but a few eager folks did call in hoping to claim the clock's hands. Hey,
1: I would have called, you know, (laughs) just on the off chance that it was a great big
3: thing on your oil? It was one of Big Ben's hands. (laughs) Get out of town. Now, you know, I can remember, I'm old enough to remember having a, a black and white TV growing up. You you guys are younger than me, so you may not remember that. But Yeah, uh, our
1: worst TV, you just had to get up and cross the room to, <laughs> to change a channel.
3: Well, we had a black and white. And um, when I was in third grade, though, this was in 1966, my big brother Dickie, one, a color TV at a local carnival it made me an instant celebrity because everybody came to our house to watch Batman in color. Oh. Uh, it was uh, it was the, one of the first color TVs in our town, and I know it was definitely the first color TV on our end of town, which wasn't particularly affluent. Well, in Sweden in 1961, a Swedish newscast told viewers that they could, in fact, turn a black-and-white set <laughs> Into a color TV.
2: (laughs) Oh, no.
3: If only they used the proper materials. A serious-looking technician explained that if if Swedes would pull a nylon stocking over their set, that the light would be filtered (laughs) in such a way. (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) That they could see the image in color. I also recommended that viewers move their heads from side to side <laughs> for the best results. So throughout the country, Swedes were seen bobbing their heads back and forth as they tried, uh, oh. tried to view the image on their stockinged screen. How do you, oh, how,
1: wow. <laughs> those are some big stockings and some tiny TVs, I'm just saying. <laughs> I guess so.
3: Maybe really stretched it out there. <laughs> and a final TV news prank takes us back to the BBC, those funny British people. Uh, the year 1957, when viewers were told... That mild weather in the Italian Alps had produced a bumper crop of spaghetti from its native spaghetti trees. Film was shown of Italians harvesting noodles from the trees. Several people phoned into the station to ask how they could grow their own spaghetti tree. They were instructed to plant a spaghetti noodle in a can of tomato
2: sauce and hope (laughs) for the best. So is that angel hair pasta, uh, or was it? Did they have to stream that later? It, it's different. That's different. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry. It's What's different, different varieties it's different of the variety. tree? I think right. you have to. Uh,
3: yeah. I think you have to graft it for angel hair.
2: Right. <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> Sometimes corporations
3: try to get in on the prank act. In 1996, Taco Bell. Why oh, I love Mexican pizza? Uh, yeah. Taco Bell announced that they, that it had purchased the Liberty Bell. <laughs>
2: oh, you know, wow. the Taco
3: Bell or the right. early Taco Bell stores used to have a little big bell hanging up in the top of them. Right, yes. right. Yeah.
1: And I think I might yeah. remember this. Right.
3: Well, anyway, they took out ads in several large uh, newspapers stating that the Taco Bell Corporation was patriotically helping out with the national debt by sponsoring the Liberty Bell. The ad stated that the Liberty Bell would now split its time between Philadelphia and the corporate headquarters in Irvine, California. Oh, immediately people get, began calling the National Park Service and Taco Bell to complain subsequently Taco Bell issued another press release stating that it had all been a hoax but that they were in fact donating fifty thousand dollars to go toward the Liberty Bell's upkeep
1: oh so National well that was good and that I think you can follow that under bad press is good that, press. Right. All press I think yeah, all press I, is good yeah press. I think they they That was very uh, well orchestrated.
3: Now Here's an article that comes to us from history.com and also londonist.com. In 1749, an advertisement in a London newspaper announced that an amazing performance would take place in London's new theater in the Haymarket District in which the performer would borrow walking sticks from audience members and turn them into every musical instrument imaginable. After this, he would completely insert himself into an ordinary bottle of wine (laughs) <laughs> and sing a melody.
1: There's a clue for it. Oh, this sa- is about
3: the same time that that newspaper uh, came out uh, from the previous uh, 150 years. People fell for it then, too. The theater was completely sold out with standing room only. <laughs> However, after a long wait with no performer appearing, the crowd rioted and tore the theater apart. <laughs>
1: <laughs> they were a little, uh, yeah, a little ticked off.
3: Legend has it that the ad was the result of a bet between a Duke and an Earl. Those Dukes and Earls, when they get up, do, 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 Oh, Duka my goodness. Or, anyway. Oh, wow. When they get together, crazy things happen. <laughs> evidently, the Duke stated that he could advertise something completely impossible and still find enough fools to fill a playhouse in London. And evidently, he was. I and I, I standing room only. I
1: think <laughs> that still applies today. <laughs> and now, for something completely off-topic
0: and off-kilter, brace yourself for the oddity du jour.
1: Okay, San Francisco brick rings. San Francisco has these seemingly random brick rings in a lot of their intersections. There are more than 170 of these mysterious circles placed all over the city, and they're pretty big. They're about 32 feet in diameter. Visitors to the city, as well as a whole lot of natives, are stumped by what they could be. Well, they date back to the mid-1800s, and and I have a picture of, of this. Uh, on our website,
3: the San Francisco brick wing, brick rings. Brit,
1: that's hard to say. Brick, brick rings. rings. Brick rings. Um, so back back to the mid eighteen hundreds is when San Francisco experienced a population boom and fires became an imminent threat. There was no way at that time to lay out water mains and pipes, so city officials decided to build sixteen underground cisterns. The first was located in Portsmouth Square and held twelve thousand gallons of water. So in 1906, a massive earthquake shook the city for a full minute, causing incredible damage. Most of the damage, however, wasn't directly from the earthquake itself, but from the fires that raged afterward. Mm -hmm. The quake had broken a lot of the city's water pipes, but the old cisterns, those old, uh, however many it was, what was it? Sixteen, yeah. Uh, They remained intact, and they were reused to battle the fires and save several San Francisco neighborhoods. So... City leaders, uh, you know, they they clued in to the fact that this might be a good thing.
3: We actually had a good idea. And over know?
1: the years, they repaired and built many more cisterns throughout the city. And the brick circles are a way of showing firefighters exactly where they can be found. Oh, wow. Yeah. Nice. So right under the street. So speaking of fire, fighting fires, though, nearly all fire departments throughout the country uh, switched from wooden ladders to metal ladders decades, decades ago. And that makes sense. Metal tends to be lighter and, of course, doesn't catch fire like wood does. But San Francisco, they have to be different. Their fire department still uses wooden ladders. In fact, they have their own ladder-making shop that craft highly engineered wooden ladders that are strong, sturdy, and flame-resistant. And they also repair the Repair ladders. their ladders. So, but, yeah. Okay. Uh, but why would San Francisco Fire Department not make the change to metal ladders? Well... Because of the electrified trolley tr- lines running through the city. Oh yeah, those
3: that's a, That's yeah. you don't right. want that. Those
2: other ones up. you yeah.
3: You don't want that coming in contact. You're cooked sure. in
2: a different way. That's right.
3: Oh, that's a great. That was our great oddity du jour today, du jour. <laughs> well, now back to our April Fools' stories. Now, there's a fellow named Richard Branson. You might have heard that name before. He's the billionaire founder of the Virgin Atlantic Airlines he's a well-known lover of April Fool's Day. Back in 1989, his annual prank came a day early on March 31st. That evening, residents outside of London spotted a flying saucer that appeared to land in a field in Surrey. Police officers went to the field to investigate the supposed UFO and were probably surprised when they actually found one there, (laughs) especially when a door opened and a silver-clad figure walked out.
1: Why do aliens love silver? I don't know. You know, they're always wearing Were silver. Were those lame, wearing right? silver?
2: Did they, did they not invent paint? I
3: don't know. <laughs> Richard uh, Branson was hiding out inside the UFO and is behind the silver-clad companion, whose name was Don Cameron. The two of them had taken off in the flying saucer, which was actually a hot air balloon, and they planned to land in Hyde Park in London on April 1st as a prank. However, changing winds forced them to land a little early in Surrey. Didn't quite make it all the way. <laughs> now, another tr- uh, another prank, on uh, um, April 1st, 1978, residents of Sydney, Australia, awoke to find a gigantic floating iceberg in Sydney Harbor.
1: Oh, okay. That's, yeah, that's Yeah, they'd be, know, they're,
3: they're pretty far away from where the icebergs would be, so that would be unusual. But several days before the prank, electronics entrepreneur Dick Smith announced that an iceberg, um, that, uh, that an iceberg he had towed from Antarctica would be arriving in Sydney the following week. He thought to give the exact date, though, would uh, be a real tip-off, so <laughs> he just said in the week he left it kind of vague. And sure enough, there it was. People thronged to the harbor area to view it, that is, until a rainstorm revealed the iceberg for what it truly was, a large covered, uh, I'm sorry, a barge covered in sheets of white plastic and firefighting foam. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we have a picture of that also. And this was from, from pranksters.com. You know, one of my favorite uh, Americans uh, is Benjamin Franklin. Uh,
1: yeah, mine too. Mm. I'm a huge fan.
3: Right. Very interesting fellow. In the days before Benjamin uh, Franklin went on to become a famous U.S. statesman, he used to be a female impersonator. <laughs> well, Can not we exactly just, like just, you're thinking. take what a the, moment
1: and, and picture that, there. right? <laughs>
3: <laughs> not exactly like you're imagining. You see, he wrote for a newspaper called the New England Current, which was owned by his brother. His brother wouldn't let Franklin publish letters himself, so he decided to write letters to the newspaper, impersonating a widow named Silence Duguid. Franklin wrote 14 letters in total, which became so popular with readers, marriage proposals were sent to the paper. <laughs> Franklin soon became bored with his ruse and owned up to his, uh, to his brother, breaking many 18th-century men's hearts.
1: <laughs> I think his brother was very put out. Yeah,
3: too. he was. Yeah, and he was a little he, and this, it was in Boston, I think. So after that he left, left and went to Philadelphia on his own.
1: Okay, so uh our last guy, Horace DeVere Cole, uh was he's known as the greatest prankster of the twentieth century.
3: Well we'll be the judge of that.
1: So via an article in the vintage dot com by Samantha Flom. Uh, Horace Devere Cole was an Irishman born in County Cork, Ireland, in eighteen. I was automatically going say nineteen. In 1881, he came from a well-to-do family, attended Eton College in Cambridge, was a veteran of the Second Boer War, and yet was best known for being an incredible prankster. The prime... That's a
3: pretty impressive resume, right there. First right, of all. Exactly. right. So you would think
1: that he would rise and, and right. be somebody of substance, but uh, not so well, much. This tonight. is
2: substance. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it's substance, all right. Okay, so the prime minister at the time was Ramsay MacDonald, and he hated Horace. The reason was because the two looked very much alike, and Horace would use that to his advantage by breaking into pl- long, politically charged and controversial <laughs> tirades in public, thus creating many scandals for the prime minister to deal with. So
3: you've got a doppelganger out there saying all kind of wild things. And, it's
2: not me!
1: And so while he, while he was attending Cambridge, uh, this is funny, the uncle to the Sultan of Zanzibar made a trip to England. Horace or Cole uh, capitalized on this as an opportunity to pull off a prank and have the royal uncle make a surprise visit to Cambridge. According to the St. James Gazette, the mayor of Cambridge received a telegram from Cole reading, the Sultan of Zanzibar will arrive today at Cambridge at uh, 427 for a short visit. Could you arrange to show him buildings of interest and send carriage? Henry Lucas Hotel, Cecil, London. Hmm. So... Of course, no one of royalty shows up alone, so they they have an entourage. Right. Cole pulled together some friends and spared no expense at dressing them up in robes, turbans, beards, and heavy makeup. They were given a tour. They were given a <laughs> tour of the university so by they the showed mayor up at Cambridge, right? By the mayor and, and a town clerk, and so Oxford, right? Uh, where, where, where. Friends, you know, they're he goes to school there, like they're yeah. passing friends, yeah. and and I think all of his friends that that were on his. You know, entourage uh-huh. uh, went to school there as well. Nobody recognized them. Well, um,
2: they're in she. They're they're in yeah. They're in kids. Okay, yeah, well, yeah, true, hello. true.
1: They're pretty. They're well the disguised. Pre- they would never accept it. Yeah. Uh, Cole gave an interview about the hoax to a local newspaper. And when the newspaper was printed the next day, and the university administration found out that oh, that they'd boy. been had, this they were almost expelled. They weren't they weren't <laughs> expelled, but they they came very Your close. Your tuition
2: next uh, semester right. just quadrupled. And so,
1: because because he wasn't expelled or, or whatever, he uh, he decided to to do a bigger thing. Oh, no. <laughs> so, in a similar caper, this one in 1910. And the prank he's most known for, Cole succeeded in tricking the captain of the HMS Dreadnought, a state-of-the-art battleship mm. that he and his entourage, which incidentally at this time included the famous Arthur, author, Virginia Woolf, uh-huh. were a delegation on official business from Zanzibar. Right. So the fake Abyssinians, no, a bit, ab, I'm sorry, how do we say Abyssinians. that? Abyssinians. Yeah. Uh, spoke a mix of Greek and Latin gibberish. Explain, exclaiming, bunga bunga, bunga bunga (laughs) for
3: delight. Oh, bunga bunga,
1: bunga bunga. uh, During their tour of the ship, they bestowed obviously fake military honors on many of the (laughs) ship's officers. And after it came out that it was all a hoax. Cole couldn't be charged with anything because he hadn't broken any laws. I mean, so again, It's not
3: a law to, to fool the Navy? Not against the law to fool the Navy?
1: I guess not. There's and nothing so, on the books
2: to start it. So <laughs> he just
1: keeps getting worse and worse because, you know, he's getting all of this affirmation right. and everything. So another notable prank. the uh, time, Cole bought out several seats for a theatrical uh, performance that he considered to be pretentious. The seats he bought were filled with bald men with letters painted on their heads. <laughs> <laughs> of course. So that when viewed from behind, a certain curse word was spelled out. The audience thought it was hilarious and the actors not so much because oh. they didn't know what was going on. They didn't know what all right. the laughter was about. Why are people laughing? So I'm not going to mention the exact word here because we really, we really don't we're know. We're a family show here. Well, and, and we don't know. I mean, <laughs> I would allude to what the word was. <laughs> but the word varies from story to story. Some say it was the word bollocks. Others say it was a certain four-letter word. And I'm just going to say that if it was a four-letter word, it mean a lot less tickets to buy right. <laughs> and fewer hair-challenged men to coordinate. Another you have childish to get prank, in this correct
2: seat. <laughs> okay, so, so
1: this one, okay. <laughs> Another childish prank Cole was known for was to have a cow udder protruding from the fly of his pants. <laughs> and when when satisfied that plenty of other people have noticed, he would feign embarrassment and then produce a pair of scissors and <laughs> snip it off. <laughs> 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 oh, my goodness. He was quite a guy. Yeah. So a- one more prank. Okay. One more prank. And I think it really illustrates Horace DeVere Cole's commitment to mischief. On April Fool's Day of 1919... Cole was on his honeymoon. He was on his oh honeymoon Lord. in Venice. Uh-huh. He dropped. Not for long. He, well, <laughs> he dropped a pile of ho- horse manure in the city square, a city that could only be reached by boat. So how did the
3: horse get there? Yeah, so it had no horses to
1: speak of. So there's no record of how officials or townspeople reacted to this, but we do know that his marriage. Only lasted 10 years before ending in divorce. And can That's you imagine? Not too surprising. Like, he's packing. Like, did he pack it in a suitcase? <laughs> <Yeah>. Like
2: <laughs> Ziploc baggies weren't there yet. That, know, and then sure. carrying
1: it around in, like, his pocket? I don't know. But I'm thinking <laughs> I would not be happy with that if that, yeah, that was my, over the my my husband or whatever.
3: But in spite of the fact, Horace DeVere Cole, we salute you.
1: Absolutely. <laughs> and I'm glad you're no longer alive. <laughs> like, I'm glad that was back then. And now it's time, boys and girls, for the Trivia Challenge.
3: Well, for today's Trivia Challenge, now you know the rules. Like and follow our Facebook page at Remnants Do Podcast. Like and share this episode post. Put your answer to the Trivia Challenge question in the comments of that post. First person to do all that will be the winner, and we'll. Have one whoopee cushion. No, I'm sorry. We don't actually
1: have a whoopee cushion. <laughs> I, we might. We I should, don't know. We should
3: manufacture some remnants stew whoopee cushions. That uh, might speaking be of whoopee
1: cushions, one year. Okay, so I had three boys. One year, they each got self-inflating whoopee cushions. Have you seen those? It's oh, yeah. like filled with a sponge. Up to date. And we, had, we were videotaping the day, and after about 15 minutes of straight farting, <laughs> we just turned the camera off. Like, they got all kinds of other stuff, but these whoopee cushions were the big, big deal. Yeah,
3: that, that's... I've got a lot of grandsons who are kind of the same It's always
2: funny.
1: It's always funny. That's true.
3: Well, anyway, the first person to do all that will be the winner and will be mentioned in the next episode of Remnant Stew. So what's our question today, Leah?
1: Okay, I tried to make this pretty hard. In 2008, a university professor created an extremely well-done documentary that turned out to be a hoax. What tipped people off? Well, the fact that the creator's name, including the title of professor, spelled out as P-R-O-F, was an anagram of the day that the film was released, April Fool's Day. Wow. Give me the name of the fictitious professor, the famous comedian that hosted the film, and what the hooks was about.
2: Good That's luck, Harvin. Great.
3: <laughs> <laughs> great question.
1: Remnant Stew is created by me, Leah Lamp. Dr. Stephen Meeker and I research, write, and host each episode. Judy Meeker helps a lot with research as hey, well. Judy audio is produced by philip sinkfeld
3: hey phil hey, oh yeah phil. that's me
1: our theme music is by kevin mcleod with voiceover by morgan hughes you can connect with us through our facebook and instagram or through our email at staycurious at listen tell us all about the awesome pranks that you or your friends have pulled off or tell us about a topic that you'd like to hear us cover in an upcoming episode or just say hi we love to hear from you
3: Now, before you go, please hit the subscribe button so you won't miss an episode. Please take the time to give us a review on iTunes. There's a convenient link on our website to make it easy for you. Share Remnant Stew with your friends, family, deep dish pizza delivery guy, unicorn (laughs) trainer, baker, and candlestick maker. And until next time, please remember to be kind and And always stay curious. curious.
0: This is Orson Welles, ladies and gentlemen. Out of character, to assure you that the War of the Worlds has no further significance than as the holiday offering it was intended to be. The Mercury Theater's own radio version of dressing up in a sheet and jumping out of a bush and saying boo. Starting now, we couldn't soap all your windows and steal all your garden gates. By tomorrow night, so we did the best next thing. We annihilated the world before your very ears and utterly destroyed the CBS. You will be relieved, I hope, to learn that we didn't mean it and that both institutions are still open for business. So goodbye, everybody, and remember, please, for the next day or so, the terrible lesson you learned tonight. That grinning, glowing, globular invader of your living room is an inhabitant of the pumpkin patch, and if your doorbell rings and nobody's there, that was no Martian. It's Halloween.
2: Halloween. <laughs>